In chapter 2, James described Abraham as the friend of God on the basis of his faith made perfect by his works. And so he believed God and he acted on it. Remember, James is a man of action. He's a show-me kind of guy. As devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we, too, want to be considered God's friends. But what happens if we're not? I mean, what if sometimes we behave like his enemies? And how would we even know one way or another? It comes down to recognizing pride and priorities. James is going to help us with that. So if you have your Bible and you're able to read along, I'm reading from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. It reads like this. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the doing of his word. Where do wars, he means, you know, battles. It could be translated also battles and disputes. Where do those battles and disputes and fights, it's funny that word fights could also be translated combat, <laughs> doing combat with people. We battle, we dispute, we do combat with people. Where does that come from among you? Do they not come from your desires, he says, for pleasure, that war in your members? Can you think of a time, honestly, when you argued with someone you weren't angry with or disappointed by? I mean, anger and disappointment are so closely related to expectations that aren't met. And while sometimes anger is a cover for sadness and fear and hurt, in those cases, we choose to be angry. Whether we realize it or not, we are just happier being angry than we are being afraid or sad or hurt. But when we do that, and when we're caught up in that anger, man, there's likely an argument ahead of us. James said, we war and we fight. We argue because we don't get what we want. But we don't get what we want because we don't ask for it. Verses 2 and 3 says, you lust means you, des- you desire. You really, really, really want to have it, but you don't have it. And you murder and you covet, but you can't obtain. And you fight and you war, yet you don't have because you don't ask. And you don't, you know, you ask, but you don't receive because you ask amiss. You, you miss target. You want to spend it on your own 
pleasure. So this is strong language, right? He, he uses these words that just make us itch and lust and murder and covet. How often do we miss out because we don't communicate well? You know, I've found, for example, in my marriage, things work much better. First of all, when I use plain language to express what it is that I want. And second, when I manage my expectations. Laura is not a mind reader. She is awesome, but she's not a mind reader. And we are super synced up. I mean, we get along so well, but she can't read my mind. She's close to it. But if I want something, it's best to tell her what I want. Laura, I would really, really like to see this. I really want this. I have these expectations. And most of the time, because she loves me, she's willing to accommodate and try to meet me where I'm at. But I've got to manage my expectations because sometimes my timing is just off. It's poor. And my intentions might be selfish or, or even worldly. Just straight up worldly. <laughs> And what does James have to say to that? He says, you adulterers and adulteresses. I, I understand the word adulterers is not going to be found in, in some other translations. Apparently it wasn't found in some of the, the manuscripts. The idea is that it may have been added later to address men who might be guilty of actual adultery, you know, neglecting the context. The temptation might be to think that James is actually talking about people who have literally committed adultery. You know, a spouse cheats on his or her spouse. But this is a spiritual adultery. And when addressing large groups of people, it was common to refer to them in the the feminine. So it it could just read adulteresses. You adulteresses, man, you adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You are, you are an enemy of God when you're a friend of the world. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world, James says, makes himself an enemy of God. You see, James' Jewish audience would have understood exactly what he meant by this, because throughout the Old Testament, following after other values and other things and and sometimes literally after other idols and gods that made them spiritual adulteresses and adulterers. He equates our skewed priorities with spiritual adultery. Again, this is the term Yahweh used several times throughout the Old Testament. When we are friends with the world, when, when we are loyal and committed to the world in the same way and even more so, than we ought to be to our maker, we are adulterers and adulteresses. We are cheating on God. We're adulteresses, man or female. It doesn't matter because we're the bride of Christ. We are adulteresses, cheating on God, guilty of adultery. And this makes us his enemies. Woe, (laughs) woe to us because our God is a jealous God. James says that clearly in verse 5. Do you think that the scripture says in vain? And he quotes, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Now James isn't quoting any particular scripture word for word here, but he's referring to a principle found in scripture. For example, in Exodus 34, 14 through 15, he says, for you shall worship no other God 
For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. Isn't that interesting? Our Lord, whose name is Jealous. That's his name. Think of all the different names of God. El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh. Well, Jealous is in that list. God says, my name is Jealous when he's interacting with us in situations where we are running after other gods. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, he says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You can look also in Exodus 20, verse 5, Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, 6, verse 15, Joshua 24, 19, Ezekiel 29, verse 35, and Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. All of this speaking to God being a jealous God. The Apostle Paul used similar language. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Interesting, right? I'm a, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. He, man, you hear Paul's heart there. He just linked us up with our Savior and says, man, you're, you're one now. And it was his heart to present other people, other churches to God in Christ. We are the bride of Christ, and he's jealous for us. God is jealous for us. He wants us more than he wants anyone else to have us. And I was going to say, he wants us and he loves us more and better than other people can love us. That's true, but he loves us because we are his. And instead of divorcing us or flicking us into eternity, damned forever... Listen to this. He gives us more grace. This blows my mind, man. In verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When God sees us selfishly fighting one another, murdering each other in our imaginations, slaying bodies with our words, man, he would be justified And immediately crushing our prideful attitudes, as James tells us clearly, God resists the proud, but he resists the proud, but he gives us a chance to humble ourselves. Why is that? Because he's got more grace to give. His grace comes in form of mercy, right? By withholding judgment. And then he gives us grace again because he's got so much to give by healing our estranged relationship when we humble ourselves. This is different from the way that we often interact with one another, right? Because we war and fight, we murder and covet because we want what we want at all costs. And yet God whose desires are pure, right? When, When he wants, he is pure, in his desires. He genuinely wants us. If you're listening to this today and you just feel lost and you feel unlovable and you feel like you've gone too far and the enemy's whispering in your ear saying you've gone too far, there's no way that God will take you back. This is the millionth time you're confessing this sin that you've done the million times before. 
God wants you. He loves you. And instead of slaying us for rejecting him and running after other gods and other idols, he gives more grace. The thing is, he won't force his grace upon us. We can resist his grace. The Bible is very clear on that. He's not going to force himself on us. It is against his nature, just like he's made us in his image as imagers of God. Part of that comes with this ability to choose in our own sovereignty to do what we want. We end up doing what we want. God is not going to make us do what we want. He's not going to make us want. In order to receive his grace, we've got to humble ourselves. Now this comes with the work of the Holy Spirit, absolutely working in our hearts, convicting us of sin, showing us the truth, removing the scales. And then we see it in response to seeing it, we've got to humble ourselves and submit to him. This isn't a work. You can't earn grace. Humble submission is the condition. God has said. And then he says, therefore, which means because of this. In other words, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, in verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Jesus modeled this for us in Matthew 4 and in Luke chapter 4. He modeled this for us when the Holy Spirit led him into the desert wilderness where he was tempted 40 days by the devil. And every time the accuser tempted Jesus, he submitted himself to the Father's will. How did he do that? Other than just being sinless, it was impossible for him to sin, right? And all his trials simply drew out of him who he was all along, the Son of God, the sinless Son of God. How did he do that? He remembered Scripture. He believed Scripture. He quoted scripture, saying to his tempter, it is written. It is written. Every response to every trial and temptation, it is written. This not only gave Jesus the encouragement he needed, but his resistance offended the devil so much that Satan left him. Matthew shares for us in his gospel, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Love that. The devil left him, and then angels came and, and served him and took care of him. Luke's gospel said in, in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus never responded with envy. He never responded with self-seeking. He never responded with self-entitlement or self-loathing or, don't you know who I am? I mean, he always responded by submitting himself to the Father's will, quoting scripture to himself and his enemies was the way he strengthened himself. And I want you to notice how Jesus resisted the devil and how the devil fled. Not forever, but the enemy went away nonetheless. James provides his audience here specific evidences that really ought to be seen that are you know, consistent with demonstrating submission 
and humility. In verses 8 through 10, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, which means you two-souled persons, one foot in the world and one foot holding hands with God. You can't do, don't do both. He says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. In the beginning of his letter, James said in chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He's not contradicting himself here when he calls his readers to lament and mourn and weep and let their joy be turned to gloom. All of these instructions are given in the context of arguing and fighting with others. It's hard to draw near to God and be embittered, stay embittered toward others. You may come to God embittered, but it's hard to to stay in his presence bitter. It's hard to see the blood on our own hands and also be mad at others. Because we're guilty. We, we need to cleanse ourselves and wash our own hands and purify our own hearts. You might ask, though, how is it we cleanse ourselves? How is it we purify our hearts? I mean, we want to believe that this is something that God does and only God and we can find evidence of that in Scripture that, you know, we ask God to purify us. Cleanse, cleanse my heart, oh God. There, is, there are things that we have to do ourselves with God's help, power of the Holy Spirit, right? I'm thinking specifically of James' comment here where he tells us straight up, cleanse your hands. You sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Peter has something to say about that as well. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, the truth of the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Consistent obedience resulting in loving other people changes us. There's a confidence that comes from being obedient. Like John says in, in 1 John, we have this great confidence that whatever we ask of him, it will happen because we keep his commandments I'll give you another example. First in the form of a question, right? When does the adulterer cease to be an adulterer? Is it when that person stops having sexual interactions with someone else? That's a good start. That's a good start, right? But when someone who is known as an adulterer begins to show his or herself faithful, showing a pattern of fidelity, that person will become known more so as a person who is trustworthy and faithful and reliable and less and less known as an adulterer or as an adulteress. When does the thief stop being the thief? When they stop stealing stuff? That's a good start. But when the thief 
becomes known as a person who, over time, shows him or herself to be a person who is known to be reliable and trustworthy with other people's things and not stealing them, that person is not really known as a thief anymore. And the same with lying and, you know, you name it. We are all at some point or another guilty of lying and cheating and stealing and murder in our hearts and adultery in our hearts and just so much gross, offensive sin. We aren't those things anymore. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. You know, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Well, time will show. Time will show whether we're really loving Jesus and walking in his ways. We have a responsibility and obligation to purify our souls. And we do that by obeying the truth of the Spirit, practicing sincere love of other people. And we love other people with a pure heart. And we do that because we've been born again. God's Spirit is in us. We are obedient to Him. His seed is in us. Therefore, we're one with Him. And it, it's going to show in our lives. What is it we can learn about God from today's study? I think what we learn from God, or when we learn about God, rather, is that He's a jealous God. His name is is jealous. His spirit in us yearns jealously. (laughs) He's like, I don't want you going after that thing. I want you. I want you. And I want you to, to, to just trust me and walk with me. He wants us more than anyone else wants us. And he's ready to give us more and more and more grace. Even when we are adulteresses, he's waiting for us to repent. He's waiting for us to submit, to humble ourselves that he may lift us up. As James says, humble yourselves in the sight of God. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Man, I'm so grateful to God. He just just loves us that much. The other thing we learn about God is that he will draw near. He will draw near to us when we draw near to him. Have you really appreciated God for his godly jealousy lately? (laughs) Or ever, for that matter. I'm so thankful that he's jealous for me. That he will run after me. He will pursue us, not because he needs me to love him He doesn't need you to love him. His love is pure. And so when he loves us, he doesn't need us to love him back for him to feel good about himself. It's not going to happen. He just simply loves us and he's jealous for us. Especially for those of us who are born again. His spirit is, is in us outside of Christ. We are enemies of God. He hates sin, and he hates those who sin. And so, if you want to be a recipient of God's love, you've got to repent. 
Otherwise, you are, you know, an enemy of God. And you can't stand before God. You can't stand before God. What is it that we learn about ourselves from this passage? What we learn about ourselves is that we war and we fight and we murder and covet because we want something and we don't get it because we don't ask for it or because our motives are selfish. Sometimes we fail, man. We fail to resist the devil. Sometimes it's even worse than that. We join forces with them, which makes us enemies of God. So here we are as born-again Christians still behaving like enemies of God. Sometimes we've got blood on our hands, and our hearts are dirty, and we're double-minded. And that's why James calls us to cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, stop being two-souled persons. It's not right. And so here's a question for you. How has your pride negatively affected your relationships with God? How has your pride negatively affected your relationships with God and others? At some point or another, in any given day, our pride is very likely to get in the way. And we've got to repent and submit ourselves, humble ourselves in the sight of God. And he, he will lift us up. He'll get, get us right. He's always ready to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we would just confess it right. What does God want us to do? He wants us to be clearer in our communication. What is it you want? What is it you want, man? What are your expectations? Because if you don't if you don't say it, if you don't express your expectations, you don't share with others what it is you want to see or you want to have, when it doesn't happen, you're probably going to be angry or disappointed about it. So what is it you want? Be clearer about that. And then check your motives. Because God knows. He knows when you're asking and, and you're selfish. He knows when I'm selfish. So humble yourself. We should humble ourselves. One of the things that God wants us to do is submit to God Submit to God in this humble way, and he will lift us up. He's happy to do that. We should also resist the devil. Resist the devil. Remember, remember scripture. Believe scripture. Quote scripture, and then obey the scriptures. This is the best way that we resist the devil because the Word of God is described as, the, as our sword, the sword of the Spirit. And if you don't know your Bible, how are you going to fight back? How are you going to fight back? You know, most all the scriptures, I think, recorded for us there when he's, when he's tried there in the desert. Those three times were probably very likely not the only times that he was tested and tempted by the devil in the wilderness. But we have those three instances. But you know he quoted Deuteronomy each time? I mean, who reads Deuteronomy? Jesus. <laughs> so we should, re we should read Deuteronomy. We should be familiar with the entire Word of God. Remember Scripture. Believe Scripture. Quote Scripture. Obey the Scriptures. And then draw near to God. Pray, repent, confess. Do what God wants, but draw near to Him. Because when we draw near to Him, as James says, He will draw near to us. And then finally, we should purify ourselves. Purify ourselves by obeying God's word and showing 
a pattern of fidelity so that we can be trusted, we can be counted as trustworthy people, reliable people, and no longer as thieves and liars and adulterers and adulteresses and murderers and, and any of all of those things. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I'm praying, Father, that you will just bless all of those who are hearing this message today, and I pray that they're encouraged. Lord, help them, help me to submit to you, to earnestly resist the devil, and to see our enemy flee from us as we, as we just, you know, remember your word, and we believe your word, and we quote your word, and, and then we do your word. So help us, God, in Jesus' name.